1: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's February 1994 in Sunderland, England. A badly burned body of a teenager has been found on a plot of land. It is the third in just three months. The deaths of all three teenagers are mysterious, but not initially suspicious. Pathologists rule out murder. Police didn't know it yet, but there is a serial killer at work.
2: He knew that he got sexual excitement from killing them. He knew that he wanted to destroy evidence of the strangling by setting fire to them.
1: It would take a new detective to finally uncover the truth and bring a 25-year-old local man named Stephen Grievson to justice.
3: You could see David Wilson, he was hungry to get this person off the streets and get this person convicted. He wasn't going to just lie back and leave it. He was looking into everything, everything again. He looked into the boys, he looked into all the evidence and he wasn't going to give up until he got his man. As
4: the guilty verdicts were read out, there were loud cheers from the public gallery, handing down three life sentences, the judge described Griefson as evil and dangerous.
1: This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Stephen Griefson, The Sunderland Strangler. Stephen Grieveson was born in Sunderland, England, in December 1970. He grew up in a large family, and his parents were reportedly violent towards one another. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that Grieveson showed some psychopathic traits in childhood outlined in old school reports.
5: appears to show some psychopathic traits in childhood. Some of his old school reports are looked at by a psychologist at his trial, and within these reports, they talk of his lack of empathy, about his callousness, about his real lack of emotion towards other people. I think there are a few red flags in Stephen Greaveson's childhood but they're not necessarily red flags that say to me, this person's going to turn into a murderer. They're red flags that say, this is somebody who perhaps needs some help, needs some support, you know, later on in childhood and, and in their teenage years.
1: Growing up, Grieveson was often in trouble with the law. Author and former criminal psychologist Chris Carter says that at the age of 11, Grieveson was arrested for shoplifting.
6: He opened a, a packet of nails inside a, a shop. He didn't take the whole pack. He took one nail and he got caught. Um, and obviously the owner of the shop didn't like that very much. And he actually went to court for stealing one nail. One nail, not a pack of nails, one nail. But he was only 11 years old.
1: Even though he was taken to court, Grieveson was unconcerned. Here's author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel.
2: Extraordinarily, he was taken in front of the magistrate. Now, for most 11-year-old boys, that would be the most terrifying experience imaginable, and they would certainly not dream of doing it again, even though it was, in many ways, absolutely irrelevant, tiny crime, certainly not punishable by anything significant, but it's interesting that Grieveson didn't take that experience as any kind of lesson. He simply brushed it off, water off a duck's back. He simply went on and did what he wanted to do.
1: At the age of 13, social services removed Griefson from his family and placed him in a children's home in Carlisle, about 70 miles west of Sunderland. As an adolescent, Grieveson discovered something about himself that made him feel ashamed.
5: This is a point where many people are realizing things about their sexuality, experimenting with their sexuality. And at the same time when people should have the freedom to do that, he's been experiencing abuse and violence and neglect. And all of this is fueling a sense of shame.
1: Grieveson struggled with his sexuality in an environment designed to reject it.
5: I think the the context of the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties Northeast is another factor in the Stephen Greaveson story. This is an area of tough working class masculinity, of mining, of shipbuilding, of those kind of jobs that make men masculine men. So there will be very much a culture of what a man should look like, how a man should behave. And for Stephen Grieves and for somebody who realises that he's gay, this is another way in which he's not going to fit in, he's not going to be
6: accepted. People that grew up in an environment where it's a macho environment, it's like, oh, no, you have to be a man. If you were born a man, you have to be a man. You have to play football. You have to do this. You have to go out and drink with the lads. Suddenly, you start having all these, you know, affection or feelings for another male. It's a very common thing for people to be a little bit ashamed and go, what's going on, this this cannot be, and they will lie to themselves. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happened with Grieveson.
1: Grieveson never discussed his experience in Carlisle with his family, but it is reported that there was sexual and physical abuse at the home, which was later closed down. When Grieveson left the home at 18, his problematic behavior was escalating He got into drugs, burglarized places, and bought and sold cars with stolen money.
5: By 1990, Stephen Grieveson had been uh, convicted of around about 38 different offenses. So he was in and out of prison. And it's this very typical revolving door that we see with kind of low-level crime, property crime. It's a way of life for some people.
1: In May of the same year, Sunderland was shaken by the murder of a 14-year-old boy named Simon Martin. After running away from home just days before, he had been found semi-naked and bludgeoned to death in a derelict building. Journalist Nigel Green says the police thought they had quickly solved the crime after arresting a local teenager.
7: He was 16. He lived nearby. Um, He was uh, a respectable lad from a good family from memory and he'd been playing in that building uh, with others, and they found his fingerprints in the building. Uh, There was blood in the building as well, and they found his fingerprint in blood, which was just coincidence.
1: All charges against the 16-year-old boy were eventually dropped, and the murder of Simon Martin would remain unsolved for 23 years. But during the original investigation in May 1990, Police had also spoken to a local 19-year-old man named Stephen Grieveson.
6: He's
5: somebody who had a reputation in the local area for hanging around with with people younger than him. And I think when you've got somebody who's trying to to get a sense of control, get a sense of power, you often feel that they hang around with people who they see as slightly inferior to them.
2: Grievson WAS QUESTIONED BY THE POLICE IN THE WAKE OF SIMON MARTIN'S BODY BEING DISCOVERED. And Grieveson said, yes, I certainly I saw him, but he was fine
1: when I left him. Grieveson was released without charge. Then, three years later, the discovery of the body of an 18-year-old would trigger a series of similar deaths that would spread fear across the whole of Sunderland. By the winter of 1993... 22-year-old Stephen Griefson had built up a reputation for his drug use and history of theft. In November of the same year, Thomas Kelly, an 18-year-old student, had gone missing from the family home he shared with his parents and his sister, Lindsay.
3: My brother Thomas was just a normal boy for the time, just kind, helpful. He would do anything for anybody, love life. We wouldn't go to bed on a night time without saying we loved each other. We were very close as brother and sister. We were close as a family. We didn't have loads of money, or nothing like that, but we, we went out and done things together. Silly things like willy picking and, you know, we just very close family, I'd say.
1: Lindsay vividly remembers the day her older brother disappeared.
3: I went to school, my mum went to work, and then Thomas had left for college. And that was the last time we'd seen, seen him. It was actually a bit strange that morning because that morning he was standing by the fireplace in my mum's house. And um, as we said bye, he walked forward and grabbed me hand and squeezed me hand.
1: On November twenty sixth, 1993, Emergency services were called to a burning shed near Monk Wearmouth Hospital in Sunderland.
3: When I came on the news, I wasn't listening to the news. and I'd, I was sitting in the house, and I'd see my dad cover his face. And I wouldn't what's wrong? And he went, there's a body being found. Well, they say parents get a feeling. I don't know where they go feeling at that point.
1: Thomas's body was badly burned, leaving little chance of finding any evidence. So senior detectives at Northumbria Police didn't assume foul play.
3: They were treating it as um, mysterious, but not suspicious. They didn't quite know what had went on with Thomas. We had told them that everything was out of the ordinary. Thomas wouldn't be in an allotment like that or a place like that normally, unless he'd went with somebody.
1: At the same time, Solvent abuse was prevalent in working class areas and detectives were keeping an open mind.
5: I think there was a real stigmatization of young men in this area during the the 1980s, the 1990s. It was a period of industrial decline. There were a lot of social problems often in some of the deprived communities in this part of the UK. So it was very easy to, to attach a particular
1: story to a situation. Initial pathology reports on Thomas's body were also inconclusive. Here's forensic psychologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton.
4: The question is whether the death's suspicious or not. In the era when solvent abuse was common, young lads found dead in an allotment, evidence of fire. If you're not thinking dirty, you're not seeing what it may be. It's the initial assessment, and if that misses what it's likely to be, then the whole investigation goes down the wrong route.
1: And that's exactly what happened. Because of a lack of pathological evidence, the police couldn't confirm that it was murder. But the truth was, Thomas Kelly had been strangled to death with his own bandana after meeting up with a local 22-year-old man named Stephen Grieveson. Detectives had questioned known troublemaker Grieveson about Thomas Kelly's death, and he reportedly told police that he admitted he was gay to Thomas Kelly. It is assumed that he killed the 18-year-old to cover up his secret. Jeffrey Wansel says he went one step further to hide the evidence. He
2: then decides to burn Kelly's body in an effort to disguise what has gone on. It is merciless. It is without possible explanation. Why would you set fire to the body of a boy unless within you there is some kind of lack of conscience? Or... It is a monstrous act. There's no two ways about it.
1: But once more, they had no evidence to apprehend him. And then, just a few weeks later on February 4th, 1994, Grievson attacked and strangled another young man, 15-year-old David Hansen, before setting his body alight. Once again, he was questioned about the death, but released without charge.
6: So now, Grifson's starting to be calculating. He starts to realize that he can actually get away with things by getting rid of the evidence. By burning the victim, he'll get rid of all the circumstantial evidence and all the evidence that that he could have left on the body.
1: With another inconclusive report from a different pathologist, detectives shockingly ruled that David Hansen had not been murdered, despite the similarities between his and Thomas Kelly's death six weeks earlier. Here's journalist Nigel Green.
7: I remember speaking to one police contact on the case, telling me that it didn't add up that it was murder and it didn't add up that it was solvents. Um, I didn't get into the precise details of why that was, but I remember him telling me that, as I say, the first one was just deemed to be a tragedy. The second one was deemed to be a coincidence. And officers said to each other at the time, as long as we don't get a third one, and they did get a third one.
1: Just a few weeks later, Greaveson attacked a third victim. His body was found 50 yards away from where Thomas Kelly's body had first been discovered.
2: Just a few weeks later at the end of february 94 griefson persuades another boy david grief also 15 to go to another allotment griefson kills him strangles him and does set fire to him again
5: Stephen Greason is escalating his offending, and for somebody with psychopathic traits, it's not unusual for them to get bored easily, and that applies to their offending as it does to their life in general. They've got a need for stimulation. They've got a need to, to up the ante and, and experience that, that kind of thrill again and again.
7: I don't know. I look back on it, and I sometimes wonder if Greason had some kind of, almost, desire to see how far he could push it without being caught. It's hard to say it's speculation, but it, it seems, strange use of words, almost reckless from a killer's point of view to repeat a similar murder in a similar area for a third time.
1: For a third time, the police spoke to Stephen Griefson and, without any proof, they let him go without charge. The families of the three deceased teenagers became more frustrated with police, like Thomas Kelly's sister, Lindsay.
3: Stephen Griefson was interviewed. We didn't know this at the time, because the police were saying that it was drug abuse. And it was afterwards that we realised that he, he was arrested and interviewed at the police station, only later to be let out and murder again. Well, I think Stephen
5: Griefson felt absolutely invincible. He was picked up by the police you know, after each of, of these boys' deaths, um, but they didn't connect him to, to the actual murders until much later. So it really did kind of shore up a sense in which he, he felt, I can do this again because the police have talked to me. They, they clearly haven't joined up the dots. I'm getting away with this. So he feels absolutely invincible.
1: Then... Less than a month after the death of David Grief, Griefson was actually in police custody. He was arrested and charged with robbery after forcing staff at a local fish and chip shop to empty the till. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com/spoken. That's linkedin.com/spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Meanwhile, investigators still weren't considering charging Greaveson with murder. The three reports from three different pathologists had failed to link the deaths. Instead, all of them were being treated as drug-related, since solvents, used as inhalants, were found at all three crime scenes.
3: We didn't understand where the idea of drugs came from. There was no evidence on any of the boys to say that they'd taken anything. No matter what the families were saying and telling the police of what these boys were like, it felt like no one was listening. People were grabbing hold of a story that wasn't true. And I think... To drag three boys' names down, it, it was awful. It was just, they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it, and they only had us to defend them, that they weren't here to defend themselves.
7: Even at the time, you could look back and think the police should have looked on that as being suspicious that they were apparently sniffers and the fires. They should have realised from day one there was something
1: not right. But time was running out for Grieveson. Investigators were starting to believe that the deaths were suspicious. But so far, no one had been charged with murder. The families of the victims were far from satisfied and demanded justice.
3: I think before the three families had met up and got together, we were all fighting from separate corners. We wouldn't let anything lie. We were trying to get information from everywhere. And I think when the families did come together, the police knew that we were a stronger force and we weren't going to back down. Didn't matter what, we knew that these boys were murdered.
7: By the time of the third death, the families were starting to kick up a fuss and the media were quite rightly uh, paying attention. One of my colleagues, uh, Paul Watson, went down to see um, the families and I remember him coming back quite um, vociferous that there was something in what they were saying. Because obviously there there could be a cynical approach that the families of glue sniffers are gonna try and make it look like their sons uh, hadn't got involved in that kind of thing and there was something more to it. But he came back very convinced. I also went out to see the families, and I remember coming away thinking, yes, what they say, there is something definitely in what they say, that um, way too much coincidence, way too many things that were wrong.
1: Months passed as the families and local press continued to pressure the police to change course.
7: You've got to look at the, at the sheer weight of the pressure the families brought, um, the campaigning that they did, Um, that they were convinced from day one there was something not right about it.
3: All the families of the victims were really close. We needed each other. We stuck together, and that's what we needed. We were no one alone, but to have those people who understood what you, you were going through around you made a difference.
1: Finally, the families got what they needed. A new detective, Dave Wilson, had taken over the case. He wanted to re-examine the evidence gathered by the three separate pathologists. Dr. Stuart Hamilton and Lindsey Kelly agreed that Wilson was critical in redirecting the case.
4: Some causes of death are simply more difficult to identify than others, particularly if there's been post-mortem changes in the bodies. Pathologists are human. People make mistakes. What you need is a new person, a new way of thinking, like the officer, David Wilson, in this case, who comes in and says, what about thinking about it differently? What about these factors? Let's look at it again. And that's the sort of thing that can often just kickstart an investigation into the right frame of mind.
3: Dave Wilson was a different person altogether, a different detective. He wanted to find out what happened. He he thought, could there be a sexual motive, which it would have been looked in straight away if there were girls who had been murdered. And he went down that route and it really helped. We felt like someone was listening to us and someone was fighting with us rather than against us. You could see David Wilson. He was hungry to get this person off the streets and get this person convicted. He wasn't going to just lie back and leave it. He was looking into everything. Everything again. He looked into the boys. He looked into all the evidence. And he wasn't going to give up until he got his man.
1: Detective Wilson was certain that all three deaths were linked. Not only were the crime scenes extremely similar, all three boys had attended the same school, Monk Wearmouth Comprehensive. In August 1994, Wilson asked for a second post-mortem to be carried out on all the bodies by a senior pathologist. An unusual ask, says author and former criminal psychologist Chris Carter.
6: You don't just call a friend and say, Can you re examine the body? No, you have to get, you know, court orders and judges and everybody involved. And this detective was relentless. He went after it and he got the court order that was needed. This is a detective that he knew that something was wrong. You know, when you read a case and, and you just, you, maybe it's a gut feeling or there's something there, you go, Okay, this cannot be like this.
1: On closer inspection, all three teenagers appeared to have died in the same way.
4: So in Graveson's case, the most important factor was that the ligature marks are then identified. We're now moving from three similar but apparently discrete incidents, albeit involving three young boys from the same school, to three potential homicides from the same school the same way. you're almost looking towards a serial killer.
1: The papers nicknamed the assailant, the Sunderland Strangler.
5: I think that the fact that Stephen Grieveson killed his victims via strangulation is very significant because it's one of the most personal forms of killing. You are watching the life drain out of them. He's probably feeling more in control at the time he's killing his victims than he's ever felt at any point in his life before. So I think it's a very deliberate choice of method.
2: I think they were groomed, encouraged, cajoled, or perhaps even threatened by Grieveson, and they paid the price with their lives.
7: I remember the day very well, I was on the sun, when um, Northumbria police uh, revealed that they were treating the deaths as murder, Um, and tragic as it was, the family would have seen that as a victory, um, that finally something was happening
1: detectives had found fingerprints and a footprint belonging to Greevesen in the derelict house where David Hansen was murdered. They were from a burglary Grieveson had committed months before, but proved he had access to the property. And by September, 1994, Detective Wilson had retrieved some conclusive evidence. Semen found in the stomach of the third victim, David Grief, was a DNA match for Stephen Grieveson.
3: When Greaveson was arrested for the murder, we weren't shocked at all, because it was what we were fighting for, for months. We knew it was him. We knew that those boys had done nothing wrong. We knew that someone had done that to them.
1: Even though Greaveson was already in prison for robbery, his new trial was set for January 1996. He planned to plead not guilty to the murders of Thomas Kelly, David Hanson and David Grief.
5: I think Stephen Griefson maintained his innocence um, for, for quite a while um, initially because he thought that he was going to get away with it because he'd come onto the police radar several times and had gone off it again. And now he finds himself charged with these murders. I think he's just chancing it. I think he's just pleading not guilty and saying, I'm not responsible because he thinks there is actually a chance that, that he's going to get away with this.
2: He is a man who wishes to conceal the darkness in his soul and will go to any lengths to do so. He absolutely refuses to accept that he could have played any part in the deaths of these three innocent young men and fronts that lie without any possible flicker of doubt throughout his six-week trial.
4: The parents of the three murdered teenagers arriving at court, where today they listen to details of how, according to the prosecution, their sons were killed.
1: During the trial at Leeds Crown Court, Grieveson showed complete contempt for the families of his victims.
3: I was 17, I think, at the time. And it was a hard thing to take in. Not just for me, for, for all the families. None of us were used to being in a court surroundings or anything like that. We didn't know what normally went on in court. What made it worse was Grieveson sat in the dock, sticking his fingers up at us. Just Gordon us, pulling faces, laughing at us. It, it wasn't nice. The
1: evidence against Grieveson was compelling. He had left prints at the house where David Hansen was murdered and his DNA on the body of David Grief. The jury took just four hours to find him guilty.
3: When Stephen Grieveson got convicted, we all erupted. The public gallery, the family, everyone had jumped up off the seat. We didn't think that we were going to get him because of the lack of evidence on some of the boys. And when he got convicted of Thomas first, we knew that he would get convicted of the other two.
1: On February 28, 1996, Judge Mr. Justice Holland described Grieveson as pure evil as he handed out three life sentences to the 25-year-old. He was sent to full Sutton Prison in Yorkshire
7: I mean, nothing is going to bring these poor lads back, um, and the pain is going to be with the families forever. But at least in finding out what happened to the sons and finding out that they weren't just glue sniffers who died in a burning building, that they were innocent victims of a serial killer. And the truth finally coming out would hopefully alleviate some of the pain for the families.
1: In December 1997, Northumbria police apologized to the families of the three boys for the distress caused to them during the initial investigation.
3: I think if the police had done a better job and looked into this properly, maybe listened more to the families about what kind of boys there were, they would have took them off the streets a lot earlier and maybe could have saved a lot of lives.
1: But the police weren't done with Stephen Grieveson just yet. Northumbria police were convinced that he was also responsible for a death that preceded all of his other victims, the murder of Simon Martin in May 1990. The body of the 14-year-old schoolboy had been found half-naked in a derelict house.
2: Grieveson clearly decided that he didn't want this little boy to tell anyone what had happened. And so he decided that he would silence him. And he hit Simon Martin with some of the rubble in the house persistently around the head. Later, he was to claim, I just flipped. No, Grieveson didn't just flip. He decided that he didn't want anyone to know what had happened. And the easiest way of doing that was to kill the boy, because he couldn't tell anyone, therefore. This was a little boy who was being killed to keep him quiet.
1: However... The murder didn't match Greaveson's usual MO of strangulation.
2: But at the time of Simon's killing in 1990, when Greaveson was only 19 and a half, he hadn't yet refined the method that he wanted to use to kill. He was still working out, in his own mind, I suspect, what gave him the most satisfaction. Martin was, if you like, a prototype. Kelly, Hansen, and Grief were the finished article.
1: Simon's murder predated the others by three years. I think the thing that I'd say with this case
5: is that we have quite a significant gap between 1990 and 1993. I'd be really interested to know what Stephen Greaveson was doing during that time period, because often when somebody commits a murder and enjoys committing a murder, they often don't wait years until they commit another one. So that gap is quite a problem for
1: me. Just as before... Detective Dave Wilson had re-examined Simon's case and discovered some DNA belonging to Greaveson at the scene of the murder. In November 2000, he was arrested in his cell at Full Sutton Prison and questioned by detectives.
2: There's no doubt that he had attacked and killed Simon Martin. Greaveson denies any knowledge of it, flatly refuses to say anything.
1: Without a confession, the police decided they couldn't charge Grieveson with Simon's murder.
2: Serial killers keep secrets because it gives them power, and it also gives them power to torment the families of their victims. Simon Martin's father, who'd been in the army, launched a great appeal to find his missing son. These were real, ordinary decent people whom Grieveson took inordinate pleasure in
1: tormenting. But, over a decade later, Grieveson finally confessed. In a series of interviews with detectives in February 2013, he admitted that he was responsible for attacking and sexually abusing Simon Martin, but said his death was an accident. He denied murdering the 14-year-old schoolboy.
3: When we found out that Greavesen had admitted to killing Simon Martin, none of, none of us were surprised. We always knew, and we always wanted justice for Simon, as well as ourselves.
1: Greaveson said he had confessed to the killing because it had haunted him for 20 years.
5: This is something that had troubled him, during his time in prison. And all of this apparently from a man with no conscience, with very little empathy for other people, somebody with, with significant psychopathic traits. I'd be quite cautious uh, about this statement, because it suggests to us, doesn't it, that he has some empathy, that he has some remorse, that he's feeling bad. But this is somebody who's been in prison for a significant amount of time. He's, He's been learning about other people's emotions while he's been in prison. He's been learning what other people want to hear, what they need to hear and also the kind of things that you need to say to make your own situation better. So, so I'd be cautious
1: about attaching any real meaning to that. On October 14th, 2013 at Newcastle Crown Court, Grieveson was back in the dock, charged with a fourth murder that had taken place 23 years prior.
3: When the Simon Martin trial came up, we all went to court every day, the same as we did the first time. Stuck together as the three families, or the four families, which it had become. It was just as hard as the first trial. We learned a lot of stuff about our boys that we got told wrongly at the beginning. There's a lot of stuff that we didn't know came out. So it was just, it was very hard, it was difficult.
1: The jury didn't believe that Simon's death was an accident. On October 24th, 2013, Grieveson was found guilty of murder.
7: It was good news. It was good news for Sunderland. It was good news for the family that this unsolved murder uh, could finally be laid to rest. And that would ease some of the pain.
1: It was revealed during the second trial that Grieveson had written to all three families of his initial victims, asking for forgiveness. In excerpts from a letter to the family of Thomas Kelly, he wrote, I know you think I am evil, horrible. I should never have done what I did. I never, ever intended to take Thomas away from you. I am sorry I destroyed your son's life, your family's life. I wish I could turn the clock back. I hope one day you will find it in both of your hearts to forgive me.
3: Those letters meant nothing to me, nothing at all. And I think, I think he wrote them to wind us up. It was his way of getting to us again. Chris
1: Carter shares his thoughts on the matter.
6: There are several levels of psychopath. Um, the, the top level is when you have zero, zero emotions. Um, there's other levels that you will have certain emotions, but not other emotions towards people. But in his case, one thing I have seen in other psychopaths in people that have been to prison is that they like the limelight. And once the limelight starts to die down, they'll find something else to bring the limelight. So it could have been that that's what the reason why he wrote the letters.
1: Regardless of his motive for writing the letters asking for forgiveness, nothing could bring back the four boys who Grieveson heartlessly murdered.
3: I think about Thomas every day, many times in that day. He's always on my mind and he's always there. It's probably the first thing I think about when I wake up and the last thing I think about when I go to sleep. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't. It's hard.
1: The man who brought Greaveson to justice, Detective Superintendent Dave Wilson, passed away in 2012. He was 63 years old. The shadow of the Sunderland Strangler still looms over the city today.
7: I look back on it now and I thank God that the the families did do what they did and that the media and the journalists at the time did what they did and really pushed for the truth to come out.
3: We were never... Forgive Stephen Graveson. Never forgive him. He's hurt us too much. And to be honest, if he, if I was to find out if he died in prison tomorrow, wouldn't bother us one bit.
1: What Makes a Killer is an audio boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natosa. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Mavridekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kreggi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer? On August 31st, 1985, detectives across California had finally discovered the identity of a mysterious killer who was wanted for 13 murders around Los Angeles.
6: He was a psychotic, paranoid, Satan-worshipping psychopath who derived his pleasure from the
7: combination of lust and violence.
1: After being chased by a mob of vigilantes, the 25-year-old assailant had to be rescued by two police officers who had inadvertently made the biggest arrest of the decade.
0: This one cop looks real close. He's Jesus, it's the Night Stalker. It's Richard Ramirez.